Welcome to Northgate Christian Fellowship's weekly message series. And now, here is Senior Pastor Ken Jensen. Uh, do you remember the movie um, Back to the Future? Anybody remember that? Okay, if you don't know it, it's, um, it's a story of a teenager named Marty McFly who um, actually goes back 30 years uh, into, the, into the, the past in a time machine made out of a DeLorean. Okay, a few of you know the story, okay? So what happens is he ends up going back to the past um, at 30 years when his parents first met. And inadvertently in this story, what happens is he messes up the way that they met at the Enchantment Under the Sea dance. And that's where they met. That's where they fell in love when they eventually got married and had kids. And so what happens is in the movie, he has messed up that. And, the, and, and his future starts to fade. And, and the way that they do that in the movie is he's got a family photo. And he sees each of his siblings slowly starting to disappear. First the oldest, then the next one. Then his picture starts to disappear. And, and so he spends the whole movie trying to get his parents back together. So they will fall in love. They will get married. They will have kids. And his future will be secure. And I was thinking, you know, all of us have a picture of our future. You know, we don't, maybe not a photograph, but we have a mental picture of what we look forward to, or what we expect, or what we hope for in our future. It might be in our relationships, might be in our family, might be a career, might be uh, education, but we all have hopes and dreams. And it's kind of a mental picture that we carry around with us. And we spend most of our lives trying to make that dream become a reality and not that it would fade. And, and the whole thing about all of that is that... Um, this idea of hope is the thing that keeps us moving forward towards our future. We as a church, some 25 years ago, actually before we even became a church, before we even started, we had hopes and dreams. We had hopes and dreams to be a church that would change the way people viewed the church. That we had a dream and a hope of being a church where unchurched people could come and feel comfortable and secure and learn about God's grace and become wholehearted followers of Jesus Christ. And that picture, that picture that we kind of painted for ourselves 25 years ago has been the one thing that has sustained us and kept us moving forward together as a church all these last 25 years. And there's been times when we've come up against challenges. There's been times when it looked like the dream was dying. There have been times of disappointment. But that picture of our future is the thing that has always kept us moving forward into the future. And we are at one of those milestone points again in the life of the church as we're beginning to talk about this new building and the opportunity to pave the way for more and more people to come to know the grace of God. That's the picture that we keep going after. And the way what keeps us going after that picture is this thing called hope. And that's what we're going to be talking about this morning. We're going to be talking about hope, and we're going to be looking at the life and the ministry of Jeremiah. So if you, want to, if you brought your copy of the story with you, we're in chapter 17. Um, if you brought your Bibles and you don't have your copy, it's in Jeremiah chapter 1 is where we're going to start. But I want to kind of, kind of bring you up to speed. We've been going through the story, which is God's unfolding story of redemption in human history. And God had called the nation, a people, a nation called the Israelites to be his own people. And his hopes for them was that they would be a light to the world, that they would be um, a, a blessing to the world, that they would be an example of what it means to live under the leadership of God as, as your king. And of course, their, his hopes got dashed a little bit because they kind of chose to do their own thing. And as we've been watching the story unfold, 
part of what happened is that the nation ended up dividing in half, a southern kingdom and a northern kingdom. The northern kingdom of Israel had evil and wicked kings who led the people into idolatry. And the same thing kind of happened in the south as well in the kingdom of Judah. And what finally happened, as we saw last week, is God finally, after hundreds of years and more and more prophets being sent to say, hey, if you don't turn, if you don't change, if you don't get right with God, there's destruction coming. And sure enough, after hundreds of years of rebellion, that's what happened. The Assyrians came in. The Assyrian Empire took over the whole northern kingdom of Israel, decimated the whole thing, set their sights then on Judah. And as we saw last week, King Hezekiah was one of the few good kings who did what was right in the eyes of the Lord. And he instituted reforms and turned the nation back to God, turned them from their idolatry, turned them from their wickedness and all the evil practices associated with that, and got a reprieve. And the, God actually intervened and decimated the Assyrian army. The trouble was those reforms were very short-lived because after Hezekiah, his son Manasseh became king, and he was worse than any of the kings before him and just perpetuated, made it even worse. So much so it actually says in the Bible, he sacrificed his own son to the god Molech, the idol Molech, and, and just instituted all kinds of evil practices and wickedness and injustice all throughout the land. So even though God had given them a reprieve, God said, you know, if you just keep doing this, it's going gonna, it's gonna to happen. It's going to happen. The Assyrians were gone. They thought the problem was over. But the trouble was another superpower arose, the Babylonian Empire, who actually conquered the Assyrian Empire, came, set siege to Jerusalem, to Judea, um, Judah, the, the southern kingdom. And over a period of about 11 years, came in, overtook the nation of Israel, took a group of people off into exile, and then left a few remnants behind. And, um, and they kind of set up a puppet government that was okay after a while. But then the nation of Judah rebelled and chafed under that, which then brought down the Babylonians hard on them and decimated the whole nation. And it's in that setting, that 11-year setting, is when Jeremiah gets his call to the ministry. So if you want to follow along, that's where we are. Uh, it's chapter 17. In your book, um, which is on page 237, by the way, right near the bottom is where we're going to be picking up. It's Jeremiah 1, beginning in verse 4. The, Lord, the word of the Lord came to me, saying, Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. Before you were born, I set you apart. I appointed you as a prophet to the nations. Alas, sovereign Lord, I said, I do not know how to speak. I am too young. But the Lord said to me, Do not say I am too young. You must go to everyone I send you and say whatever I command you. Do not be afraid of them, for I am with you, and I will rescue you, declares the Lord. Then the Lord reached out his hand, touched my mouth, and said to me, I have put my words in your mouth. See, today I appoint you over nations and kingdoms to uproot and tear down, to destroy and overthrow, to build and to plant. And that's where Jeremiah begins his ministry and through the rule of about five different puppet kings that kind of came and went very short lived through all that through that 11 years that's what jeremiah did over that span of time um he just kept prophesying and and turn, trying to turn the people back to god and that's the story of jeremiah jeremiah was not a bullfrog uh, but he was a good friend of mine and yours, because the life and ministry of Jeremiah is all about hope. 
Yes, the words that he spoke about destruction and coming judgment, those were harsh words, and they were hard for people to take. But what you find in Jeremiah is this reoccurring theme of hope. He is one of the most hopeful of all the prophets, and, and he gives us some really good hope-building practices and habits for our own lives. And if you're here this morning, you're feeling a little hopeless, or you're feeling like, I don't know if there's any hope left for me, there is. And there's some things that you can take from the life and ministry of Jeremiah that I think will give you a greater sense of hope. This is what hopeful people do, practices that you can institute. First is this, hopeful, hopeful people believe in the character of God. They believe in God's character. Jeremiah is sometimes referred to by scholars as the weeping prophet because he, 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 in his, in his um, letter, uh, in this book, and in the uh, second book that he wrote called uh, Lamentations, it's, there's all these pouring out his heart and just weeping. Some of it weeping over the assignment that God has given to him, but the other part of it is weeping over the people that he sees not going that direction. And by the way, that's what God told him. We didn't read all of his call, but one of the things that God said to him up front, he said, I'm calling you to be my spokesman. You're going to speak my words to the people, and by the way, nobody's going to listen to you. Now, that is not a great recruiting um, way. That's not the way to go about that, okay? I mean, if somebody came to me and said, Ken, I want you to go and preach to those people, but nobody's going to listen to you. They're going to be texting on their iPhone. Nobody's going to care what you have to say. That would be a little discouraging. And that's what happened to Jeremiah. It's discouraging because he keeps preaching the word that God has given to him, but nobody listens. The kings don't like what he have to say, has to say. The priests don't like what he has to say. Other prophets speak against him and don't like what he has to say. The people don't like what he has to say. He li- that don't listen. None of them listen to him. In fact, he actually gets arrested a couple of times. He gets thrown in prison. He gets thrown into a cistern. He just has a miserable life. And yet through all of this, you find this measure of hope. The word hope appears in the book of Jeremiah and in the book of Lamentations, the second book that he wrote, 14 times. That is as many times as all the other prophets in the Old Testament combined. As miserable as his ministry might have been, as hopeless as it might have been, he still has this measure of hope. In fact, in the book of Lamentations, he writes these words, This I call to mind, and therefore I have hope. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. As rough as everything was for him. In fact, his name actually means means the Lord lifts up. (laughs) And, and, And that's what he says. He says, things look pretty hopeless for my nation. Things look pretty hopeless for me. But here's where I get my hope. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. And that means that means every morning when you get up as, as defeated as you might sometimes feel, as hopeless as you might sometimes feel, there are enough mercies of God for you that day. And each day there are enough mercies to carry you through. Because it comes on the character of God. See, here's what Jeremiah knew. And what we need to remember is there is nothing that you will experience in your life that God cannot use for good. There is nothing that you will experience in life that God won't use to draw you closer to him. There's nothing you're going to experience in life that will be so overwhelming that it's beyond the hand of God. And that's where hope comes from. When we put our hope in God, it is something far, far stronger than what we can do on our own. 
And here's what he says. No one is cast off by the Lord forever. Though he brings grief, he will show compassion. So great is his unfailing love. For he does not willingly bring affliction or grief on anyone. In other words, what he's saying is, for those of you who have a picture of a God who stands in heaven with a big billy club just waiting for you to step out of line so he can whack you over the side of the head, you got the wrong picture of God. That's not how God acts. That's not, that is not God's character. Yes, he will sometimes correct. Yes, sometimes he will reprove us. Sometimes he will punish us. But it's not because he's looking for a way to make our lives miserable. It's because he has something better in mind. And what Jeremiah knew about what was happening to the nation of Israel is this. God wasn't doing this to pay them back. He was allowing this to bring them back. Because he is a God of mercy and steadfast love and faithfulness. And hopeful people understand that. They know the character of God. Second thing is that hopeful people rely on the promises of God. The exiles are taken off to Babylon. And what happens is, what the Babylonians do is they take the leadership. They take the, the, the kind of the upper class, the, the rulers and the scholars and everybody who's kind of the decision makers in, in Judah and takes them all off into exile and spreads them out all over Babylon and then just leaves kind of the poorest of the poor behind in that way, defeating their leadership and, and squashing any chance of a rebellion. And so now these people who have been, who used to be in the ruling class are now off in exile and they are in a strange land. Nothing is familiar. This is totally unfamiliar territory. They're in a culture that they don't know, languages that they don't understand, customs that they're not acquainted with. The climate is different. The topography is different. There is nothing familiar about where they are. And sometimes your life takes that kind of a turn. You find yourself in unfamiliar territory. Maybe you get to a point where your dreams kind of crumble and they're in ashes. And you think, this is not the future. This is not the picture of my future that I had in mind. Or maybe you are, maybe it is, you are to that point and you see that picture about to, about to develop and really come to fruition, but you don't know what the next step is and you not, don't, don't know if, if you're making the right steps right here and now. So whenever you find yourself in unfamiliar territory, there's some words from God. God has Jeremiah write a letter to the exiles in Babylon. Now, I don't know about you, but if I had been a prophet telling these people, turn or God's going to judge you, get your life right together, you know, get this nation back together, let's get back, because if you don't, judgment is coming, judgment is coming, and then judgment finally comes, I think if I wrote a letter, it would start with the word I, and it would end with so, <laughs> and you can kind of fill in the blank in between, but that's not what he writes. He writes these words from God, and this is what God has him write to them. I know the plans I have for you declares the Lord, plans to prosper you and not to harm you, plans to give you a hope and a future. Now, notice he doesn't say, God says, I know the plans you have for you. Because <laughs> God doesn't do that. God says, I know the plans I have for you. God has a plan for your life. And even if things haven't turned out the way that you expected, even though the, it's not turning out to be the picture that you had in mind, God has a way of working redemptively in everything. 
And even though maybe it looks like it is about to come to fruition, that dream, that hope that you've had all this time, and you're not sure what that next step is, and you're not sure how to get from here to there, these are the words you need to hear. These are the words that are spoken to people who have no hope. He says, I know the plans I have for you. Plans to prosper you, not to harm you. Plans to give you a future and a hope. You see, God has plans for your life. He doesn't promise us everything that we hope for, but he does make promises to us. He says, whatever you go through, I will never leave you. I will never forsake you. See, our hope gets rooted in our confidence in God because when God makes promises, they're not just hopeful maybes. They're assurances. And our hope is rooted in the confidence that God is in control of this universe, of this world, and even of my individual life. So he goes on and he writes these words. You will call on me and come and pray to me, and I will listen to you. You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. I will be found by you. That's a promise of God given to a people who had no hope, a promise that you can take to your own life. God says, I know the, prom- the plans I have for you, and you seek me, you will find me. Just search me with all your heart. See, this is the biblical picture we have of hope. The picture is one that we have an anchor that is secured somewhere out in our future. And that secure anchor is set. It's not going to move. And we are tied to that anchor by this line. And literally, the word hope has to do with this idea of of a cord that's been woven together. And that line from our present circumstances to the hope that we have that God has a plan for us, that line, that is our hope. That's what we hold on to. It is that eager expectation that our future is secure. And it's something that we can hold on to. By the way, does anybody know the name, what is called the end of the line? Not the, not the end of the line that's attached to the anchor, but the end of the line that's supposed to be attached to the boat? It's called the bitter end. Yeah, literally, that's what it's called. It's called the bitter end. You know why? Because that's what it feels like if you see that line go overboard. <laughs> now I'm tied to nothing, and I'm drifting, and I'm hopeless. See, he wants us to take hold of that anchor and secure it firmly to that little boat that we call our life. Because he's saying there's a future. There's a hope for you. You hold on to me. We're going to get there together. And hopeful people rely on those promises that God gives us. And the last one, hopeful people buy into the future that God has for them. After about 11 years, of puppet kings set up after all the exile, the people actually do rise up a little bit. They chafe under this rule. They have a measure of peace, but it's not the kind of life that they used to have. And so eventually what they do is they chafe under it. They they bring up a rebellion, which at that point, Babylon just comes in and totally squashes the whole thing. And King Nebuchadnezzar and the armies of Babylon surround all of Jerusalem one more time, this time for the last time. And at this point in the story in Jeremiah's life, Jeremiah is in prison. The, nation is, the, the city is surrounded by the armies of the Babylonians. And another word from the Lord comes to Jeremiah. And this is, the, this is the word that God speaks to him. The word of the Lord came to me. 
Hanamel, the son of Shalom, your uncle, is going to come to you and say, Buy my field at Anathoth, because as nearest relative, it is your right and your duty to buy it. Huh? <laughs> wait, 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 God. I'm in prison in a city that is surrounded by the enemy, and this is what you got for me? <laughs> your cousin's going to come and want you to buy a field. And sure enough, that's what happens. His cousin shows up, says those exact words. I have a field in Anathoth. It is your right and privilege to buy it. I'm offering it to you. You can buy it. And I'm sure Jeremiah is saying, okay, I might look like a dumb preacher, but I'm not that stupid, okay? I don't buy a piece of the Brooklyn Bridge. You know, there's nothing. There's no future because at that very moment, at that very moment, that field in Anathoth, Anathoth was where the Babylonian army was encamped. That's where their headquarters were. So what he's saying is, this is that worthless piece of property. I got no use for it. It's already been overrun. It's in enemy territory anyway. Hey, you want to buy it? (laughs) And you would think, who would be that stupid? Lo and behold, he buys the field. So I bought the field at Anathoth from my cousin Hanamel. And he made it official. I weighed out for him 17 shekels of silver. I signed and sealed the deed. I had it witnessed and weighed out. I completed the transaction. I bought it. Why would anybody do something so stupid? It makes no sense at all. It's an enemy territory. Chances are, I will never build my summer home on that piece of property. Never going to have a vineyard there. Never going to have a few olive trees. That doesn't look like the picture of my future that I had. Why would anybody make such a stupid move? One word, hope. Here's why. Because God says, this is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel says. Houses, fields, and vineyards will again be bought in this land. What he's saying to Jeremiah is, you need to buy into this. You have been talking to these people about the coming destruction, and now it has come. You've been talking about the coming judgment, and now it has come. And now the people are hopeless, and now there is no future. And everybody's thinking, this is it. This is the end of the story. We are done. We are finished. And you have been telling them all along, don't give up hope. Don't give up hope. So now you put your money where your mouth is. You buy that field. You're buying that field because you are buying into the future that I said this nation still has. And buying that field is going to be a sign to the whole nation around you. Everybody's looking at you now, Jeremiah, because they've heard your words and they've seen it all come to pass. And now you're talking about hope. They are going to look at your life and they're going to see that you're buying this field and you're doing it because you believe there is a future. It doesn't make sense right now. It's a stupid move in every way, shape, or form. But it's going to say to this nation, there's hope. There is hope hope and see hopeful people buy into the future that god has for them because we often use the word hope really to talk about wishful thinking or, or or daydreaming but but hope is something much more tangible and real i mean think about it when you have someone who is an olympic hopeful they don't sit at home twiddling their thumbs saying i hope i get a call I hope somebody asks me to run that race. Now, what they do is they have a hope and a picture of a future 
of performing on the world stage in the Olympics. So they train. And they get up early before school. And they train at night after school. And they give themselves to it. And they compete in events and trials and all of these things. And they keep pushing themselves more and more and more. They keep moving forward. The reason they do it is they have a picture of their future. They have a hope to compete in the Olympics. And it's that hope that drives them forward and invests their time and their energy and all of their resources to getting there sometime. And that's what real hope is. It's not daydreaming and wishful thinking. It's the belief that God has a plan for me, that God has a direction for me, that he has a direction for us as a church, and we believe that there's a picture that he has for us, and we know his character, and we believe in his promises, so we buy in to the future that he has for us as a church, for you as an individual. You see, that's what hope does. We link our hope to the character and promises of God. And things change. Because when we link our hopes to God, all of a sudden we start thinking outside the box. All of a sudden there's a whole raft of possibilities that we never saw before. Because God can do for us something we couldn't do for ourselves. And that's the hope that God has for you. Eugene Peterson puts it this way. Hope determined actions participate in the future that God is bringing into being. Do you bow your heads with me? Thank you for listening to this week's message. We trust that you'll join us again soon for another uplifting message from Northgate Christian Fellowship located in Venetia, California.